Hey, um, please forgive my voice today if it gives out a little bit. I was under the weather this week. I'm feeling a lot better, but still a little bit of that. So we'll get through it with the Lord's help. We are on uh, the home stretch in our series, The Way of the Kingdom, which is our study in the Sermon on the Mount. You can open up your Bibles, your devices to Matthew chapter 7 today. The three verses in Matthew, or sorry, the three chapters in Matthew that constitute the Sermon on the Mount, I think are Jesus's most important teachings and probably the most important words that have ever been spoken. These passages outline Jesus' vision for what life could look like for those who follow him. It tells us about God's blessing in our lives. It shows us how to trust in God, how to treat each other, and, and teaches us not just how to do what is right, but also shows us how to have a transformed heart that wants to do what is right. And basically, Jesus is answering the question for his followers, how are we to live in God's kingdom. Not just one day in the future in heaven, but here and now in the kingdom of God being established on earth, how are followers of Jesus to live? And of course, one of the things you'll notice as a follower of Jesus is that there are all these other people around. Just look around. There's all these other people around who are also trying imperfectly to follow Jesus. And it can be kind of annoying. Do you have anyone in your life who annoys you? Don't point at them. But sometimes the hardest part about life is the other people. I know sometimes the hardest part about my job is the people. My job would be so easy if it weren't for all the people. Of course, I wouldn't have a job. But maybe it's just introverts like me who feel that way. The extroverts are like, I want to be where the people are, right? They sing that song when they wake up in the morning. But this isn't a solo mission. This isn't an individual endeavor. We are a part of a community, a, a family, a tribe, a cohort of people following Jesus together. But that can be the most challenging part. People can frustrate you. They can get in your way. They can bother you. They, they can make you stumble. And sometimes it would feel a lot easier if we could just be me and Jesus all alone. But the reality is, as Jesus teaches us about his kingdom, he teaches us that there's going to be other people going along with us, and that's actually an integral piece about being a follower of Jesus. And if we're going to learn about righteousness in the kingdom of God, then we need to remember that righteousness is all about the health of our relationships. It's all about how we interact with and treat each other and love each other, not even the people that annoy us. So our text today provides us some direct teaching about some of the ways in which we are supposed to view our relationships and how we are or are not supposed to treat others. So we're in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 6. I just want to say a quick prayer before I jump into the text. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your people, the people that you have intentionally put into our lives to challenge us, to encourage us, to shape us. To, to guide us, Lord Jesus, and even the ones that are difficult, Lord. We know that you have put us together in this community for a purpose, and we know that your multi-ethnic, multi-generational family is beautiful. And so we pray you would bless it today and give us your wisdom and your heart as we open up the scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 7, 1 to 6, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. We're going to break this into three parts. There's three commands in here, which at first glance can look disconnected from each other, but I believe there's actually a really helpful flow between these three commands. We'll, we'll, we'll show you as you go along. Command number one, do not judge. Do not judge. Or you too will be judged. Imagine for a moment that all your life you have carried a recording device around your neck. It stays with you night and day. But this recording device has very special programming. It's designed to record whenever you say or think something that someone else should or shouldn't be doing. It records every time you say to your kids, you shouldn't eat so many sweets. It records every time you say to your spouse, you're overreacting. It records every impatient comment you make to a restaurant server or a drive through employee. It also records every piece of gossip. Did you hear what he did? I would never act like that. But more than just your words, it records your thoughts. Every time you think someone's outfit is ugly or too immodest, Every time you think someone's making a poor decision and you would never make such a bad decision. Every time you think someone has spent too much money on their house or their car or their vacations. And if you had that kind of money, you'd do much different things. Every time you look at someone and think, she's putting on weight, she must be eating unhealthy. Or, she's so skinny, she must be eating unhealthy. Or you're in church and you see someone who's not as expressive as you in worship or prayer and you think they must not love God as much as I do. Or you see someone who's overly expressive and think, take it easy, all right? This recording device is always with you, recording every thought and every comment you make about what other people should or should not be doing. And then when you die and you stand before the judgment of God, he pulls out the recording device and he says, I'm going to make this simple. I'm not going to judge you according to my standards of how you should or should not live. I'm going to judge you according to your standards of how people should or should not live. So the question is, how do you think you would do? Would you pass your own standards of judgment. Every judgmental comment you made, every time you decided that this person should do that or shouldn't do that, were you able to live up to your own standards for living? Jesus seems to be telling us that to a certain degree, the standard that we elevate as the way people should or should not live is going to be the standard by which we are judged ourselves based on our own judgmental attitudes. Luke's gospel records a version of this teaching as well. Luke 6, 37 to 38. Do not judge and you will not be judged. 
Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here we see, both in a positive way and a negative way, that somehow we have a say in both our own judgment and our own blessing. There seems to be a spiritual principle here. Are you a judgmental person? You will experience judgment. Do you like to condemn people? You will be condemned yourself. Are you a forgiving person? Then you will be forgiven. Are you a generous person? Then get ready to be blessed in the same measure, actually in a greater measure, because it'll be shaken down together, pressed together, running over, poured into your lap. Later in the New Testament, I think Paul, kind of riffing on this principle, also says, you reap what you sow. So I think, though, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the way I understand Jesus' words and thinking about what he's been talking about through the whole sermon, we could summarize his words another way. We could say, don't judge the motivations of other people's hearts. Don't judge the motivations of other people's hearts. Because when it comes to judging, there's actually a lot of complexity, and I've spent a lot of time trying to work this out. I've labored over this sermon a little bit. Because elsewhere in the New Testament, we're actually instructed to make certain kinds of judgments. We're supposed to hold each other accountable. We're not supposed to allow sin to just run rampant in the church in the name of being non-judgmental. Paul literally tells us that we need to judge each other with the same Greek word Jesus says, not judge each other. Paul also seems to think that one day we're going to be judging angels. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if you notice a Christian sinning, go to them and point it out. So there's some complexity and nuance here, but I think Jesus is specifically getting at our tendency to not just judge external behaviors, but make assumptions about what's going on in a person's heart. Consider what Jesus has been saying all along, particularly about righteousness. He's been talking about acts of righteousness like prayer and giving and offering or fasting. And he says some people pray just to show off, to make people think that they're spiritual, and, but they don't do it at home. They just do it publicly. Some people give money to the church just to, just to gain a reputation for being wealthy and generous. Some people fast only to score points with people to make them seem spiritually mature. But other people do these things, the same actions, but they do it out of a sincere heart just for their love for God. They don't care what people think about them. And from the outside looking in, it can be impossible to tell the difference between those two different people. But it's easy and it's tempting to want to be the judge about who's doing something with the right motive or the wrong motive. When I see someone give an offering, do I have the power to discern whether they're giving it out of a self-righteousness as a way to gain a reputation for being rich and, and, and generous? If I see someone give a $50 offering and then I give a $500 offering, can I on the surface actually discern whether my offering was more generous than theirs? $500 is more money than $50 certainly, but is $500 a bigger sacrifice for me than $50 is for others? For some people in our church, giving $500 would feel like nothing. For others, giving $50 is a huge sacrifice, and they'd have to make major decisions about how they spent the rest of their week. I can't, from the outside, make a judgment on what's going on in somebody's heart. 
When I see someone praying, do I have the ability to judge whether they are praying out of a genuine love for God? Or can I judge that they're praying just as a show for others? Jesus says, do not judge the motivations of someone's hearts. What if I see someone coming to church who's looking a little rough around the edges? They're not really dressed in church clothes and I saw them smoking outside and maybe their language isn't as sanitary as I would like. Do I have the ability to judge their heart from their outward appearance? What if someone's dressed really well, they've never touched a cigarette and their speech is always kind and considerate? Is that an indication that they actually have a purer heart than the other person? Because I've personally known a lot of people who look a little rough around the edges, but if you consider where they've come from, they've come a lot farther than the people who always look sterile and clean. The point I believe that Jesus is trying to make is that you cannot make a judgment call merely from external appearances. Not only that you cannot, but you should not. Additionally, I think Jesus may be speaking to a game that many Christians like to play. I call this game Duck, Duck, Damned. You know the game Duck, Duck, Goose? Duck, duck, and then you call someone a goose and you run around the circle. I think Christians play Duck, Duck, Damned, where we like to, we like to guess. That one looks saved. That one looks saved. That one looks saved. Definitely not saved, right? Duck, 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 damned. I don't know who I was pointing at over here. <clears throat> it wasn't intentional. But I have people ask me this question sometimes. They, they'll tell me about a friend or a relative, and maybe the person's still living, or maybe they're dead already, and they want my opinion on whether or not they will be in heaven. And generally, I say, it's not up to me. Thank God it is not up to me. I am not the judge of the universe. I don't want that job. I've never asked for that job, and I shouldn't try to do that job. The only reason I would ever have to be able to answer that question is if I was standing in line on judgment day and Jesus said, Dave, I need to run an errand. Can you take over for a few minutes? But it's not going to happen. Thankfully, there is someone who is way better qualified than me because I have limited knowledge and limited capability to understand all the circumstances of someone's life or to know their heart. But God, in his infinite knowledge, knows everything. And he is the one who can make that call. I know that I serve a good God who is gracious. And yes, I believe that it is only through faith in Jesus that we can receive eternal life. And those who reject salvation in Christ will not have eternal life. And there is a hell. I believe all those things we should believe. But I know that God is good and gracious and that even the worst offender in the last moment of life can call on the name of Jesus and be saved like the thief on the cross beside the Lord. Because salvation does not come through living a good life. Salvation comes by putting your trust in Jesus Christ to receive his grace and receive salvation by faith. And we can't always judge through a surface appearance whether that has actually happened in a person's heart. So I think we may all be a little surprised about who we see in heaven and who we don't. But the big idea is that you and I won't be the ones deciding who will be there. 
And I think that's a good thing. And I think it's not just a good thing, it's a liberating thing. Because I don't have to waste any energy trying to figure it out. I don't have to waste any energy trying to do Jesus' job. Instead, I can do my job. And Jesus told me to love people, to love my neighbor as I love myself, to love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. That's my job. I can focus on loving people. Jesus can focus on being the judge of the universe. And if I learn to trust Jesus, I trust that he's going to do a way better job at it than me. And so I can just let him do what only he can do. Do not judge, or you too will be judged by the same standards. I don't want to be judged by my standards, by the way. I want to be judged by the standards of Jesus, who took my place and died for my sins so that I could be counted righteous before God. So it flows into the next command, and let's read it again, verses 3 to 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Command number two, remove the plank. Remove the plank. This actually provides more information, I think, on the do not judge command. But something you need to know is that I think Jesus was actually funny. I think he was funny. And, and commentators have talked about this. His, his jokes don't always translate culturally or through the translation of the text into English. But I think this is one of the moments where Jesus might have got a chuckle from the crowd. Because he gives this ridiculous example that I think would have just kind of, I don't know, created a funny moment. And, and I'm going to use my, my Bible to illustrate this. I meant to grab a two-by-four and I forgot it. Anyways, to all our hardworking tradespeople in the room, uh, let's say you're on the job site and your coworker complains that they've got a speck of sawdust in their eye that they can't get it out. And she says, hey, hey, I'll help you. I'm a good friend. I'll help you get that sawdust out of your eye. Come on over here. And you walk over and you've got a two by four stuck in your own eye. I think, I think people would have laughed at that when Jesus said that. You, here, come here, buddy. I, I, I got you. I'll help you out. There's, you have no ability to help your friend get the speck of sawdust out of your eye when there is a log on your face. And so Jesus is creating this, this ridiculous scenario to say, how could you possibly be of help when there is a plank in your eye? First, take the plank out so that you can clearly see. Notice Jesus doesn't say, never help someone with a speck, never point out the speck. He says, before you can help someone, you have to remove the plank. We're not supposed to ignore the fact that others have issues or others are in sin or others are facing challenges. We're not supposed to just be hush-hush about it in the, in the uh, name of being non-judgmental. We're supposed to first remove the plank so we can be helpful. The speck, I believe, represents unrighteousness or moral issues, sin issues, personal struggles. And when I want to bring direction or correction to someone, it needs to be done with clear vision. So I think with the flow of what Jesus is saying, that the plank he's talking about represents judgmental attitudes. If you are a judgmental person and you're judging your brother, 
you are unable to help them remove the speck because you are blind. You have no ability to help someone because you are blinded by your own judgmental attitudes. If you're here for Christmas Eve, we talked about the fact that one of the reasons Mary and Joseph could not find lodging in Bethlehem was most likely because Joseph's family were judging Mary and Joseph because they had heard Mary was a pregnant virgin. They didn't believe their story, and so they judged them and said, there's no room for you. Because Joseph's family would have lived in Bethlehem and would have been expected to bring their family home. So their blindness, because of their judgmental attitude, blinded them from seeing that the Messiah was literally showing up at their door. The one they had prayed for had actually arrived and they had an opportunity to be hospitable, but they were blind and could not help because of their judgmental attitudes. So if I come to you with moral superiority and I say, oh, I can't believe you struggle with that. You're so immature compared to me. If only you had life figured out like I do. I'm coming to you with a plank in my eye, an attitude that blinds me and makes it impossible for me to actually help you. But if I come to you with humility and say, hey, I notice you're struggling. I struggle with lots of stuff too. I'm trying my best to follow Jesus with you. Can we help each other? Can I help you with this thing? That's someone who's removed the plank and is able to help. It's a matter of being self-aware. It's a matter of admitting I am not immune to the sins that other people struggle with. I think a lot of pastors think they're immune to the sins of the pastors who make the news for all the wrong reasons. And that belief of their immunity of those sins is one of the things that leads to pride and leads them into those very same sins. And if I think that that same sin can't get into my heart, then I've got a plank in my eye that makes me blind to my own need for grace. If we do not recognize our own need for God's grace, if we come with judgmental attitudes, we will never be of help to anyone. Third command, protect what is sacred. Matthew 7, 6. Do not judge, pardon me, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is admittedly a very challenging verse to understand. And I I labored a lot on this and read a lot on this verse and sometimes it just created more confusion. But I think, again, we need to understand the context of Jesus' conversation here and understand this metaphor in the context of Jesus' day. Imagine taking some of the holy bread from the temple or some of the meat that had been sacrificed to the Lord And taking that, which was holy and sanctified, and and the only people who were allowed to eat that food were were those who ministered in the temple. But imagine taking that and feeding it to a dog. And dogs were considered unclean animals, not just a regular, they were an unclean animal. So taking that which is holy and pure and, and set apart for the Lord and giving it to an unclean animal. What happens to that food? It ruins it. It it makes it impure. It makes it unholy. You've taken something which is sacred and made it unholy. Or imagine taking pearls, which are meant to be beautiful jewelry, like a pearl necklace, and, and instead of putting it on a lovely woman's neck, you throw it to a pig. What's the pig gonna do? It's gonna think it's edible and it's gonna try to eat it. It's gonna realize it can't. Then it's gonna trample it in the mud. And Jesus says, it might actually turn on you and tear you to pieces. 
So you've taken something that's beautiful and, and destroyed it, and now you've actually, it, you, and now it's actually come back and turned against you. So Jesus is saying you're taking these things that are be- beautiful and holy and using them wrong, and actually it creates damage in the end. Now it's possible to misunderstand and abuse this passage and use it to do exactly what Jesus said not to do. Some people interpret this passage and they say, okay, so who are the dogs and who are the pigs? And so, okay, dog, 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 pig. You know, we're doing exactly what Jesus said not to do. So that can't be what it means. I don't think the dogs and pigs are derogatory terms that are supposed to be labels on any specific group of people, just metaphors for how we use that which is holy to do unholy things. But I think at least one application for this metaphor is what Dallas Willard calls harassing people into righteousness. You cannot harass people into righteousness. You cannot force people who don't want to to follow Jesus or do things God's way. It will always turn out poorly. And when we try that, what normally happens is we're trying that with a judgmental attitude, with a plank in our eye, and it turns out against us. For example, have you ever had a super fit and healthy person come up to you and give you a ton of advice about how to get in shape? And you're standing there with half a piece of cake in your mouth? Like, I don't care about your ab routine, man. I just want some cake and peace. Or if you have your kids in, in the grocery store and your kids are melting down and a stranger comes up to you and starts giving you parenting advice? Like, I... I am not interested in this right now, okay? I'm giving my kid the candy bar, go away, right? That is bad timing and bad form. The thing is, the ab routine might be an excellent routine. And the parenting advice might be the best advice you've ever heard. But both are given in a situation where the person didn't ask, doesn't want advice, and it feels like a person with a plank in their eye showing up into a situation they're not welcome in and bringing judgment, not help. It's a person saying, you're unhealthy, so I'm going to teach you. You're a bad parent, so I'm going to show you how it's done. So I think Jesus is trying to tell us this truth that we can't harass people into righteousness. You can't just go up to a stranger and say, your life is a disaster. Let me tell you about your need for Jesus. You can't go to someone who's suffering from depression that you don't know and say something like, if only you would trust in Jesus more. You can't go to someone who's a different age than you and say, do you know what the problem with your generation is? Do people need Jesus? Yes. Should everyone trust Jesus more? Yes. Does every generation have problems? Many. These are all true things. And in the right context, these truths need to be shared. But you can't harass people into righteousness. If you have a plank in your eye, it doesn't matter how great your advice is or how true your words are, they won't be well received. They'll be stomped on and they may be turned against you. I think this is so important when it comes to Christian witness in the community. If you're going to try to lead someone to Jesus, you can't show up with a plank in your eye. You can't show up with a judgmental attitude. 
I think this applies to the way Christians engage in some of the public dialogue around contemporary hot-button controversial issues, abortion, gender identity, medical assistance, and death. You name the hot item of the day. Often all Christians do about these issues is yell and scream and complain and protest and argue with strangers online. And the, the attitude that we receive and the, the reputation we get is that we're just a bunch of angry people with giant planks in our eyes. Our message might be true, but it won't be well received, and we often get torn to pieces because of the way we give it. When we start our witness with a judgmental attitude, the holy truth of God gets turned into something ugly. It takes a good truth, like all life is valuable even in the womb, and it gets turned against us to, to be seen as hate towards someone who's, who's pregnant and terrified. It takes a good belief that God's beautiful design for marriage and sexuality is good, and it gets turned against us to, to hate towards people who have unwanted sexual attractions. It takes a good belief that God can redeem any painful situation and gets turned into to a lack of compassion for people who are in pain. Our judgmental attitudes, the plank in our eye, destroys the effectiveness of our witness because you can't harass people into righteousness. At the risk of stealing the thunder from next week's sermon text, we'll look at um, one of Jesus' most famous teachings where he says, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. So if you consider your own life, the, own, the things you've struggled with, the, the sin that is a challenge for you, your own need for correction, how do you like people to approach you to help you with the speck in your eye? What do you need? What kind of relationship is required? What kind of words are needed? What kind of love and grace are needed in that situation for it to be helpful to you? Well, Jesus says, in all you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. Something to ponder this week. It's really the point of application I want to send home with you. Our connect groups will talk about it as well. Chad and Brent, would you come back up? We're going to just close with a time of prayer. We're not going to sing a song or anything. We're just going to close in a time of prayer. And I want to create a, a space where maybe God can speak to hearts today. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount continue to be challenging. Um, you only have to spend 30 minutes every Sunday hearing about it. I have to work on it all week, and I get challenged all week. But this is a tough one. Christians, for, unfortunately, have the reputation of being judgmental. And I think it's because too often we show up with a plank in our eye. We have truth to share. We have the greatest news in the world. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the word of God. It's a message that the world needs to hear, but we can't show up to deliver it with a plank in our eye. It makes it unhelpful and the message gets turned against us. So it's a point for us to consider as we bow our heads in prayer. Would you join me? We thank you, Lord, that you are good. Jesus, I thank you that your first response to us in our sin, in our need, was not judgment, but love and grace and mercy. 
And Jesus, instead of standing at a distance and pointing out our faults, you came close and took on our pain, took on our situation. You took on human flesh to live among us, to show us the love of God. And instead of a plank in your eye, you, you, you built a cross out of that plank, Lord Jesus, and you hung on it for our sin. Dying on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven and receive eternal life. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your mercy and forgiveness and all that you have done. Lord, you have not harassed us into righteousness, but you poured out your blood to make us right with God. So Jesus, help us to be more like you. Lord, heal us of our judgmental attitudes. Help us to remember the grace that we need in our own life. Show us what it looks like in each situation represented here to remove the plank from our eye so that we could be of help to one another. Lord Jesus, we have said that, that our mission as a church, our purpose as a church is we are helping each other follow Jesus. I pray that we would be helpful to each other. So Lord, give us the grace. Give us the grace to not harass each other, but to love each other as you have loved us and to do to others as we would have them do to us. We thank you. We love you. We praise you and give you all the glory today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Feel free to join us for lunch in a few minutes down the hall. If you're new, head to the newcomer's booth. If you haven't had a chance to give an offering today, hit the giving stations. God bless you. We'll see you next time.